0: This episode is made with the support of patrons like Wayne Klingman, Donna Hill, and Mick Fisher. If you want to learn more about how to become a patron and have your name in these opening credits, visit patreon.com ticklishbiz.
1: Temptation never came in a more dangerous package. Explosively new. Ernest Hemingway's The Killers. The wheels of fate challenge the killers who reach across today's great speedways to trap their victims as they roar across the screen in their Cobras, Ferraris, Maseratis at 160 miles per hour. Only Hemingway could have conceived it. Only today's screen could make the characters come so vividly alive. Lee Marvin as Charlie, who paid him $25,000 for each killing.
0: It's business business anyway, you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Wish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic movies. I'm Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis. This week, we are talking about 1964 with probably a healthy dose of 1946's interpretation of The Killers. And we are joined by somebody I'm trying very hard not to fangirl over. Max Allen Collins. Max, how are you?
2: Really good. I guess this is the new normal. It's not too bad. (laughs) Actually, my wife and I went out into the wild yesterday and a couple of bookstores and a restaurant and everything. So it's very nice after a year and a half or so in the bunker. But I have a lot in my bunker. So (laughs) yeah.
3: At his bunker right now and it's pretty much the ideal place to be
0: locked in i'm gonna be hanging out here when the apocalypse finally is nigh at max's house for people that don't know max is an incredibly prolific author writer of all sorts of historical mysteries great books that you should all read i read all of them because i'm a nerd <laughs> Fun fact, Max, you probably don't know, but you actually bought a copy of when Samuel Fuller put out a book that they published it a couple years ago, you actually bought it through Amazon through me. And I was so excited that I included like a little note, which I don't know if it even like ended up in the book. I told my mom to put it in there that was like, I'm a huge fan. This is so cool.
2: That's very sweet. That happens once in a while. The thing that amuses me is when somebody talks to my non-existent secretary and says, would you tell Mr. Collins that? Which is amusing to me at the huge Collins organization.
3: Yes. (laughs) I hope your secretary always lets you know. Yeah. Yeah. My
2: secretary is my wife and she is not the most respectful employee one might.
0: (laughs) might But for people who also don't know, you were on Noir Alley talking about weren't to kill You write so many amazing books that are in the noir universe. What is it about noir that drives you and it fascinates you?
2: Well, noir is a very tricky thing. We could do an hour just on what everybody is sure is the definition of noir, and there'd be four different things, probably. For me, of course, it starts with crime fiction. That was what I was attracted to as a kid. I mean, really a kid, 11, 12, 13 years old, and seeing the occasional movie on TV back in the days of three channels to pick from. Pretending to be sick Sunday morning, so I didn't have to go to church so I could watch The Maltese Falcon. Yeah, nice. that's, that's my ancient but significant history. The thing about crime fiction is every good story, I think has a conflict. And crime fiction has conflict built into it. You don't really have to think about it too hard. There's a murder, or there's a robbery, or there's something. If you wander through real life, and you want to see people behaving as if they were in a melodrama, then you look to crime. With crime fiction, you get to do reality and non-reality at the same time. You get to do larger than life. So many of these If you go to James M. Cain, for example, both of his very famous stories, Double Indemnity and Postman Always Rings Twice, they hearken to a real crime. It's not really unusual in crime fiction for there to be something in real life that inspired it.
0: You became good friends with Mickey Spillane. For many classic film fans, he's the granddaddy of the type of noir that we know now. What was it like working collaborating with him?
2: It was fantastic because he was a very sweet guy. He had a tough guy, blue-collar persona. We mentioned Born to Kill, and he looked a lot like Lawrence Tierney, or Lawrence Tierney looked a lot like him. He was kind of a big guy, and when you think of Lawrence Tierney, it's not like a puppy dog or a pussycat. Stacy Keach describes Mickey Spillane as a pussycat, and he was my son's godfather, and they were like two big kids together, very human. What drew me to Spillane is that when I was really starting out and around 13 being attracted to this material, I really will date myself because I got attracted to private eye fiction because there was a craze on TV in the late 50s of private eye TV shows. Peter Gunn, 77 Sunset Strip. Perry Mason, Mike Hammer with Darren McGavin, not Stacey Keach. There was a Thin Man TV show with Peter Lawford, And I've always been somebody, I want to read the source material. If I really love a movie, I've got to read the book. I immediately went to those writers. and What I found out was that Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler were critical darlings. They were from the beginning heralded, and to some degree, James M. Kane, were really heralded as a new serious kind of Crime fiction. Chandler famously said that Hammett had taken crime out of the vicar's drawing room and thrown it into the alley where it belonged. And that was a very famous line of his from his essay about walking down the mean streets, was so significant. Spillane was vilified. And that just blew my mind at the time. Why were these three writers who I loved were working in the same genre in very interesting ways? why were these two, Chandler and Hammett, why were they lionized? And Mullane was really blamed for everything from juvenile delinquency to the lowering of the literary IQ of the nation. I researched it and I looked into it and I eventually became a defender of his and would write articles about him and write articles about Kiss Me Deadly, the film, which I wrote about in college before any of the fuss had happened about this among film buffs. If I had to really define it, I think what happened to Lane was he got caught between the right and the left. In our era right now is kind of interesting with a whole cancel culture discussion. But you had the right attacking him because of the sexual content. You had the left attacking him because of the vigilante content. Everybody hated him except millions and millions of readers. And it actually, I think, affected Mickey because he eventually had a religious conversion. He didn't write for about 10 years. You probably know who Dr. Frederick Wertham was who wrote Seduction of the Innocent. If you don't, Seduction of the Innocent is this very famous book that happened in the early 50s where this psychiatrist, Dr. Wertham, took on comic books and said the comic books were the reason for juvenile delinquencies rise and were ruining American children and American youth, much as video games have sense and much as plug in whatever the current thing is. He wrote this book where he criticized comic books, and out of that came the comics code, and all the horror comics disappeared, all the crime comics disappeared. It took years and years for Marvel and DC, through superheroes, build comics back up, and then underground comics happened. Now there's a graphic novel section of of bookstores, but that wasn't the case. For years, comics were funny books. Interestingly, they're funny books... Which sister kids stuff, but if you put adult content into them, then you can't do that because they're for children. It was a self-fulfilling prophecy. In the book, Seduction of the Innocent, he attacks the EC comic books, Tales from the Crib, and so on. He attacked one writer of fiction, just one, Mickey Spillane. Now, Mickey had started as a comic book writer, it's interestingly, which I'm not sure word I'm even new. This is the tapestry that was happening when I was a little kid. Imagine your favorite comic book. They stopped publishing it because all the parents of America said you shouldn't be reading that. Now, honestly, it had no effect on me, right? I mean, I have committed many murders, but they've all been (laughs) on the written page.
0: We're talking about the killers today and your books, whether that's the Nathan Heller series. That's my series. Dre and I were talking about Road to Perdition earlier how do you balance all of the different things, whether that's historical elements that you want to include, narrative, Hollywood, how do you approach all of that in your writing process and create something that I'm shocked we don't have numerous Max Allen Collins adapted TV shows in the works. Actually, I don't want that because I feel they would ruin them. But I'm just surprised that you're not your own universe of
2: characters at this point. That's very nice of you. We did have a Quarry TV show. That's right. And they did a pretty good job on it. I don't think they conveyed the humor of the series because there's a lot of black humor in what I do. And if you drain the black humor out of what I do, sometimes all that's left is unpleasantness and there's got to be a balance. There's two things going on. This is like asking an actor, why did you pick this role? And then they go on and on about all of the reasons, the character and the subtext of this. Here's why. They got a phone call and they were offered a movie part and they said, I'd like to eat this month. So they took the part. (laughs) That's true. And we're going to talk about a movie here pretty soon. There's any number of people, including Ronald Reagan, who took the part because they basically had to. There was no, I love the script. In fact, he hated the script. And so I have to say the same thing. There's two things going on. There's the artistic impulse, which is what are the stories I want to tell? What's interesting me? One of the things I do often is I turn things on their head. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I did two independent films about a character called Mommy. And Mommy was my taking the bad seed. If you've ever seen the bad seed, and I bet if you're a movie buff, you have. And turning it on its head and hiring Patty McCormick as an adult to play the mother <laughs> of a child. Instead of the mother finding out her perfect child is a sociopath, the child figures out that her mother is a sociopath so that way that my brain works on these things you mentioned nathan heller i was actually teaching the maltese falcon at a community college literature course years and years ago and i noticed on the indicia page that it was 1929 that it was copyrighted and i just thought oh 1929 that's the same valentine's day massacre then i thought hmm well, that means that Sam Spade and Al Capone were contemporaries. So then the idea of doing a private eye, not meeting an Al Capone type as he would in, say, a Chandler book, but actually meeting Al Capone, that became interesting. And then from there came, when I do real crimes that are either unsolved? They're famously unsolved or controversially solved. So I could do something like the Lindbergh kidnapping, which is quote unquote solved, but There's a lot to indicate that they got the wrong guy. Artistically, I'd say that's a major aspect of how I work. But the other thing is, who will buy my stuff? Who will put a book out for me? You take something like Road to Perdition as a really good example. From Road to Perdition, a graphic novel, I was able to do two prose novels because it was a famous property so I wrote two prose novels then when I had another prose novel I wanted to do the publisher said no we're satisfied with two so I went back to the comics publisher and said would you like another graphic novel and they said sure so when they say are you thinking about whether it should be a movie or should it be or would it be better as a graphic novel or would it be better as a?" it would be better if there's a paycheck because my life is all about avoiding real work <laughs> hobby has paid my way longer than you lovely ladies have been alive (laughs) i have been making my hobby pay
3: you've made the idiom of if you do what you love you'll never work a day in your life your actuality
2: that is actually it and i work harder than anybody i know but i want to work I'm at an age where a lot of my friends are retiring. I'm like, what are you doing? They've spent their life doing things they don't like to do. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm spending my life saying, I want to do more of this. I want to do more, 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 more. It's the You have all those reality. killers in your head. They have to yes. do
0: something. The day Nathan Heller finally retires, the day I will be very, very sad because I'm going to be like, what am I going to have to read now? I- pages, is a... done. I'm not
2: going to retire, so the ending is going to be sadder than that.
0: I'm afraid.
3: Oh, <laughs> no! <laughs> something, something you just mentioned, I hadn't realized till we looked into today's movie, which I know Kristen will set up nicely for us, but when we talk about it, until I was reading further, I hadn't realized that the Ernest Hemingway short story it's based on also had gleams of a real-life crime story behind it. There's some nice dovetailing beyond your interests, but also in that approach to storytelling that make you even more the perfect guest to talk about the killers.
2: When we get into it, the Inrits Hemingway aspect of this is very interesting. Now, I don't know what you're talking about. I actually don't know what crime you're talking about. I do know it was a very interesting and even at least mildly controversial thing at the time, the use of his name. Because, you know, and I will lead into the introduction here, the real title of both films is Ernest Hemingway's The Killers. It's like Walt Disney's Snow White. I'm sure he thinks it's more like William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Yes. But yes. <laughs> yes. The title of Kiss Me Deadly, the official title is Mickey Spillane's Kiss Me Deadly. When they put your name in the title, you're big in the culture. Yes.
1: That
0: segues nicely into talking about the movie. I told everybody to watch at least one version. I watched both. We're talking about predominantly the 1964 one, which tells the story through different uses of flashback. And we can talk about how both versions utilize flashback in vastly different ways. But the 1964 version directed by Don Siegel, you have two contract killers, one played by Lee Marvin, who are going to look for a man named Johnny North, played by John Cassavetes. They're going to kill him. Johnny is very prepped for that possibility and almost seems to just be resigned to it. He is killed. Lee Marvin's character, Charlie Strom, is interested, but they're also looking for loot. They're looking for the belief that he knew where this money has been hidden. As they start to break down where the money is, it leads them to looking at Johnny's life as a race car driver, his relationship with a woman named Sheila Farr, played by Angie Dickinson, and her relationship with an evil man named Jack Browning, played by a very craggy Ronald Reagan. The 1946 version is very similar, directed by Robert Seadmack. In that story, it is told predominantly in flashback, with Burt Lancaster's character, Oli, who is a boxer who also dies at the beginning of the movie. It's not a spoiler. And his relationship with a woman named Kitty Collins, played by Ava Gardner, missing loot. The plots are relatively similar, but how they both diverge in the telling of the story, I thought was incredibly fascinating because I don't that I've seen a movie. We talk about remakes and stuff. Obviously, a lot of what we've talked about has been remade. But the way that Siod Mac And Siegel tell this story in two very subtle and almost makes two completely different movies, I thought was just infinitely fascinating.
2: Let me start with the Ernest Hemingway aspect, which is fascinating, although we won't have to spend much time on it. You can almost follow the beginning of the 1946 film in the short story. It's pretty much replicated dialogue and all then just continues. It just keeps going. So it was very faithful to Hemingway. That was then, and to some degree now, a very famous story. I would say that The Killers is, in my opinion, the best Hemingway story of his early period. He wrote some later ones that are arguably better, but that was a powerful story about his character, Nick Adams, who witnesses a lot of things. And there's a whole collection of Nick Adams stories that are to some degree autobiographical the 1964 version uses none of the short story it uses the setup of the killer's going to kill the person who's resigned to be killed so thematically it's there but it's completely different the hitmen go to a school for the blind which is significant because blindness is particularly moral blindness is a major aspect of the second film. It's in no way resembles the short story other than that little piece. So at the time, a lot of critics were saying, and even viewers were saying, why is this called Ernest Hemingway's The Killers? There isn't any reference in here, and there was one, but it is a bit buried, let's face it. Hemingway, had he been around, would probably liked it even less than he liked most of the movies they made out of his books and stories. (laughs) Let me lay this in just as background. It was going to be called Johnny North. It was not going to be called Ernest Hemingway's The Killers. I believe that that probably happened when they made the decision to release it to theaters, because I think this is really interesting and weird. This was going to be the first made-for-TV movie. Siegel, who was not a top-tier film director, but a film director, didn't do a lot of TV at that point. And they hired him to do this. They got a pretty good cast. Angie Dickinson was a movie star. Lee Marvin was at least marginally a movie star. Reagan was a fading movie star. Pretty good cast for a TV movie in 1963 when they shot it. They apparently delivered early in 1964 to NBC and NBC after a bunch of publicity of we're going to make movies for TV now. And NBC was just like aghast at how violent it was. And then there's the other thing that's really interesting. You know what happened in November 1963? JFK was killed by, theoretically at least, somebody with a rifle in a window. All right. Well, there yep. is a scene in the film where one of the main characters is killed by a rifle shot by a guy in the window. Here's where it gets weird Ronald Reagan is the shooter. <laughs> So this movie that got rejected for TV because there was reminiscent of the assassination of a president. The scene was a president who got shot later, and I've never heard anybody comment on that either. Right? <laughs> like this if that was we need to have. Yeah, if that was
3: done after the fact, there would have been notes like. This is a little heavy-handed. If you're doing historical fiction of like, we can't have Ronald Reagan play a character that shoots someone in 1963 through the scopes of a rifle across the street. You're so right, the thing that fascinated me, because I greatly prefer the Nick Adams short stories than his novels, I connect much better with them. And Hemingway, it's very funny. There's such an innate sense of machismo and there's so much that comes with him and the expectation level and then combined with crime fiction of the style of movie. There's just a lot of expectations laid and then either subverted or played with. The main kernel of the short story that I find so interesting in this isn't so much that Lee Marvin's character senses that this money is still out there and attainable. It just niggles in his brain the entire time why when they go to shoot Johnny North and Johnny North has a heads up, he doesn't run. I loved you talking about the moral blindness as a theme of this movie because it very much is we get there and there's actual blind people at the school of the blind and the killers are so immediately set up to lack any morality. There's no complications. These are bad men with no morals and the idea of one of them not being able to let go of why did this person not behave in the way that I would expect? Why did he not run when he knew we were coming for him? That's what's interesting about the short story, right? Is that it's that same thing Thing of it's a box or it's a whole thing, the short story ends with just this resignation of like, yeah, that's interesting to me. So it's funny because it's such a small part of the story, but as an overall thread, what Hemingway built with that is throughout this. It is something that your Lee Marvin keeps coming back to. It's the question that he wants answered throughout, and so when you get the beautiful nonlinear storytelling, it's all to serve this question That's like a philosophical musing from this horrible person, which is really a fascinating construct for a movie
2: that still has all of the flash and whatever to it. Let's state here that it is very much a TV movie. And if you try to view it and not understand that it was shot as a TV movie, you can wonder what the fuss is about. It's got terrible rear projection constantly throughout the movie. It's better lit than most universal movies of the period, but it still is. everything shot at Studio City. It's just got that universal look to it. It looks like a Dragnet episode of the period in terms of the visuals. But there's attention to detail in the way that the actors are directed. And the blindness is echoed consistently throughout the movie in the use of dark glasses. In the fact that the hitmen walk in with dark glasses on into a world of people in dark glasses, except a lot of the blind people... Well, some do, but don't have dark glasses on. Johnny North wears dark glasses for the heist. And then so his eyes are covered in the hospital. The blindness motif there, that's not something they really did on TV. They weren't thinking it through that way. Some of it's got to be in the script, which was Gene L. Kuhn. He was one of the best Star Trek writers for all the nerds out there like me. He was a very good TV writer. And so some of that may have been in the script that there's a feeling like that they were thinking through a couple of these motifs another one is the many times people, marvin in particular says i just don't have time it's pretty much the last line of the movie when they're roughing up the poor blind woman at the beginning who's a blind receptionist you didn't see a lot of that in movies in 1964 that was just like whoa you could just think that the bc executives must have just been out of their minds when they saw that so on one level, it's way above what you could expect out of a TV movie of the era. But on the other hand, if you try to look at it, not knowing that it was shot as a TV movie, you might say, this is really cheesy. The only noirish lighting in the whole movie really takes place in Johnny Norse's sleazy hotel room later in the movie. And then there's some stuff at night when he's fleeing from Ronald Reagan shooting him. But I could really see a lot of people who are into film noir saying, why are you people even discussing this? This doesn't look like noir, but thematically, thematically, it's so noir. And it sets the stage for point blank, which is only three years later. Incredibly sophisticated film three years later.
0: That's why I am a big fan of the noirs of the 60s. I don't know if it's a term that people use, but I can't help but call them elegant noirs. There's this slickness and this coolness to noir shot in bright daylight. I'm sure somebody's going to yell at me and say that's not a noir, but I think of like Harper with Paul Newman as being very similar. Watching this in a movie that takes place in bright sunlight, the characters go into the blind school in the middle of the day. That's automatically weird, disorienting, because you're used to noir being dark and shadowy. And that's why the 46 one, albeit good, and these are both first-time watches for me. I had not seen either. But I ended up preferring the 64 version, mostly because the 46 one is very indicative of the noir era in the sense that we've talked about moral blindness. The fact that you have two killers being the investigators, going in and trying to figure out what's going on here. Whereas in the 46 version, it's the great detective of all 40s films, the insurance guy, played by Edmund O'Brien, and the cop who is Burt Lancaster's character's friend. They're the ones that have to piece together this story. But because it's all flashback... I don't know. I just felt that there was more immediacy and a contemporary quality to the 64 one that was just compelling because it was different.
2: I got a cop to something. You've mentioned Heller a number of times, Kristen. The other character that is considered a signature character of mine is Quarry, who's a hitman. It was the first series of novels about a hitman with hitman as the protagonist. And in the first book, he stole from the killers because the premise of the first book is that Quarry must solve the murder that he committed. He has to play detective. Now, the difference is he has to because he's betrayed. And there's a middleman who won't tell him who hired him. So he has to figure out who hired him so he knows who betrayed him. I saw that movie in 1964. I would have been like a sophomore in high school and saw that movie in the theater. And so that got into my brain real early, real early. And Quarry was created probably around 1970, which is only six years later, really. It surprises me sometimes when I think it through. But I would agree with you if there's any aspect of the second movie that really elevates it above the first excellent movie, it's that use of the hitman as the investigators. Now, there's a pretty good chance the reason they did it that way is to both make Lee Marvin's character more important and also, as an independent filmmaker, I will say, to shoot him out cheaply so that you could bring Lee Marvin in and shoot him out in in a week or maybe two weeks and you can have him be the top-billed star, but you don't have to pay him what you'd pay him for the run of the picture so
1: (laughs) that's true that's so true I have to interject here and say two things first thing I've seen both it's been a little longer since I've seen the original quote unquote I prefer the original because I'm a time traveler as you all know I love the classic I love the iconic noir style of it. I am a gigantic sucker for Ava Gardner. So just seeing her in half of the film really gets it for me. I will say I prefer two things about this version, which I really just saw for the first time. For one thing, I do agree with you completely. I love the fact that they have the investigators be the killers. That really adds to it. If they had done that in the original, I think it would have been even more compelling. But two, I have to say my favorite part of this whole movie if you had told me this would have been my favorite part going in I would have told you were you were crazy but I love Ronald Reagan in this (laughs) he's so good (laughs) you spend half the time now going what the hell is he doing in this movie (laughs) when you really stop and think about it and watch him he's really good in it I really liked him he makes a great villain he should have done it more often
2: well he He did
1: (laughs) I was exactly I was like he did It was
3: just not for Hollywood. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Exactly. He is very good at it. And there's a good acting in this movie. But the nice acting moment is right before he gets killed. There's this look in his face when he knows he's going to get shot. It's just like where he's thinking, yeah, that's about right. I should get killed. Well, there.
3: that moment, this movie is one of my favorite endings of any movie. Oh, yeah. And it's sort of from that moment on because a few things have happened. It doesn't count as spoilers because we talk about movies that are like half a century old. But that moment that you're talking about, the face that he makes is the exact face that we've seen Johnny North make at the beginning. Yeah, because they both have been betrayed by the same woman in the same heartless way and they are so surprised by it that they just give themselves over to this murder and that the connective thread like I was saying of this mm-hmm. whole time Lee Marvin is like why didn't you run and he's put it together oh because he was betrayed you killed him you broke his heart you killed him you betrayed him and so in that moment Ronald Reagan has literally been betrayed in the exact same way by the exact same woman and also doesn't run he just freezes and And takes it. And and having that combined with just the complete nihilism of the rest of the ending, and that it. Pays through in a way. You're so right. Like, this is a TV movie, it's hilarious, and I cannot imagine the tables overturned at NBC about whatever cut they got of this. Like, them literally roughing up an older blind secretary happens in the first two minutes. I would be like, what are they showing us? But that it ends the way it does is such a great payoff because one of the things that's fascinating, like we talked about, is the lack of morality in this. Every person you are encountering is a garbage person, and it makes it so much more interesting interesting because you're like, oh, they're all below this line. You are never waiting for a redemption tale. You know enough about noir to be like, yeah, Angie Dickinson's not going to come through. (laughs) We are not going to find out that this femme fatale is actually like, oh, uh, what I did just wander in here. What? You're not worried about that. It gets into the muck and stays in the muck and then it finishes them all off because they're muck. It's so
2: wonderful and bold. One of the things that I really noticed in this viewing of it, the score is by John Williams of all people.
3: Oh, not just that. Did you see he's credited as
2: Johnny Williams? My heart stopped. Yeah, Yeah, it was amazing. He's probably a kid. (laughs) And he has quite a romantic theme that plays underneath. And Henry Mancini wrote the song, which is a song about being out of time, by the way. I wrote it down. The song is too little time. That fits your theme that you found. Yeah. You've got this romantic music playing. But if you look at the scenes between Johnny North and Sheila, all the dialogue is art. None of it is two human beings connecting. It's always metaphorical and arch and kidding. And she actually kicks him in the ass at one point, playfully kicks him in the ass. She's going to kick him harder later on. I would like to say to these three women into film noir, I would like to defend the femme fatale. I believe. Oh, we're always
0: doing that. Go for it.
2: <laughs> okay. Well- we love a femme fatale. Yeah. Gunter from a male perspective, it's always presented as a misogynist thing to have these women portrayed the way they are. And I'm not saying there's no misogyny, particularly in the way they end up, but that's mostly the production code, not anybody feeling any given way. Any number of these women would have gotten away with it if the writers had been in charge. But these are the strongest characters in these movies. They are the smartest characters in the movies. And they also are the characters with the least options in the movie. So you go for it, girl, is my take on this. Lee Marvin shooting her, Lee Marvin hanging her out the window, that's not misogyny, that's misanthropy. That's sociopath stuff, okay? And, you know, most of the characters in the movie are, are sociopath, And the, the few that... No- And and the sad thing is somebody like Johnny North is not a sociopath. He's just hanging out with them and he should know better. And he knows he should know better. And that's partly why he just takes the bullet. And that
3: we've, when we meet him, so of course he's teaching at the school of the blind. So we, we know from the beginning, if any of them have this morality, it's going to be this guy that we lose. So when we get more of his life, you do see that. And I think you're very right. Like Kristen and Samantha and I would agree with you that femme fatales in general, and you could definitely make this argument for T. Dickinson in this film that it's they are often they're women who would be running major corporations if they were able to do so and in the time period that they're in they are put into boxes and like one of my favorite lines in this because the archness of their communication is incredible and normally I would be critical of it in the sense I'm like Ugh, why did these people fall in love there's no actual thing but that's not the point is he asks her about herself and she says I'm pretty that that's really all you need to know and and but what that's exactly it that's the femme fatale right like that's her saying like yeah that's all anybody sees that's what i'm working i'm taking advantage of this system and i'm gaming the system with how it games me and and i do think
2: there's such a strength in that yeah that's the ace that's the card she can play that's the ace in her deck
0: exactly and i think that it's so telling too if you look at the two dueling posters for both versions of this movie that it's Burt Lancaster and Ava Gardner equally placed on the 46 poster, but it's all Angie Dickinson splayed on the entirety of the 1964 poster. You get Lee Marvin in silhouette there like in the bottom corner, but who's really looking at that, you know, it's it's all about Angie Dickinson. And to go to, back to Samantha's point brief about Ronald Reagan, you know, I think that it's so jarring for people to watch. I, I was watching this and I was giving Reagan a lot of playful ribbing because, like, he's wearing a lot of pancake in this movie, and it's very evident on an HD TV. I was like, okay, but when Sheila says she's gonna stay in the room after he has told her to leave, and he says, "Oh, I know how to solve this," and he slaps her across the face, I literally was like, "Oh, okay." I mean, it's jar- it's jarring for numerous reasons. A, because it's Ronald Reagan, you're like, "Oh, okay." He's a little too comfortable slapping that woman. I don't know. How- how I feel about this. But also the fact that if you watch the 46 version, the similar character that's dealing with Ava Gardner's character feels like such a non-entity. You know, he's not necessarily a distinctive performer in the sense of like a Burt Lancaster and Ava Gardner, but it's that moment where you really do start to empathize, I think, a bit a with more of the Lee Marvin character because you're like, OK, both of these guys treat women in horrible, horrible ways. But like you just I think by proxy, Lee Marvin becomes that character where you're like, no, I'm going to put my money on that guy because at least I feel he's somehow different it's a very weird way that the script plays with the concept of characterization and not necessarily good versus evil but maybe just more tolerable versus unrepentant or I don't know it was it was a moment where I was like okay this movie's proving all bets are
2: off well the two the the two hitmen of the two Clue Gulliger who was a guy I thought was going to be a big actor and he, he always was an interesting actor he had a TV show eventually and he's still he's still alive you know, he's in, he's, he, he's somebody that, uh, that Quentin Tarantino uses sometimes he's in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, for example, I think, I think he is. He's, he's a sociopath. He's a, well, actually he's a psychopath, I would say. I mean, the way he, he goes around playing with stuff and, you know, blowing stuff. I mean, he's just have he's having a good time. Marvin is a serious guy. I mean, he's, 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 uh, you know, he, he's a businessman. He's, this is his business is murder and he sees that he there's money to be made here but there's something in him that makes him wonder i think he thinks he understands human nature and that that really throws him a little bit but one of the delights about reagan is first of all people reacted the same way that you're reacting he didn't he, he had never played a villain before that's his only villainous role so they're used to seeing him be you know the commander of a U-boat or a, a, a Western sheriff. Romantic
0: or, leading man in frothy
2: con. Yeah, he was very handsome and boyish in his handsomeness. He became famously an old man, but he was a, a boyish, handsome, a very all-American guy. You choosing him to be the representative, basically of corrupt capitalism, was worked before he was he was president. What's wonderful is how much he looks like the presidential Reagan. There's no other Ronald Reagan movie where he looks like President Reagan. This that's movie what
1: surprised me the most seeing yeah, the I was suits? like, wait a minute, that's President Reagan, not, you know, forties Newt Rockney <laughs> Reagan.
2: Well, I mean, think about it. What if you were watching this movie and all of a sudden it, you know, you're, you've got you're you're watching, uh, you know, uh, you're watching Angie Dickinson and you're, wa- you're, you're watching John Cassavetes, and it cuts to the stands and there next to Norman Fell is Bill Clinton. You go, what? Or I mean, it just it's 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 mind boggling, and uh, so so uh, I, it's a, almost distracting. But I, I think I think Reagan's actually good enough in the part that you buy him and that you do kind of he does become browning which is a gun by the way a Browning.
3: oh yeah i did not tie that together i loved even just the idea of yes that it was old man reagan it definitely made me want to stay with my moisturizing routine <laughs> because speaking of <laughs> once upon a time in hollywood all i kept thinking i looked up like reagan was 52 when he shot this and then i was thinking of brad pitt who was like 56 in once upon a right. time and i'm like oh our skincare has just gotten so much better <laughs> <laughs> but, but the idea of the Browning, there was also this physicality of Regan, like not just with him hitting her, but their whole thing is about the big heist is them stealing money from a post office truck. And they're literally like dressed like cops and they have these, those are the TV movie parts, right? Yeah. Like they have these detour, like they look like they hobbled together workhorse detour sides and they're out there. And then like, so watching Ronald Reagan be in a suit and imposing and hit a woman was easier for my brain to process than watching him dressed up as like a state trooper and then carting this detour sign around and like, Ooh, moving traffic and then running over and jumping in a car. Like those were the parts that I was like, Oh, my brain's going to break. What am I watching? Like Wiley (laughs) Coyote. Yeah. Did anyone else with this? I kept, I, 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 the angie dickinson's styling and i had never realized before her similarities to jenna Rowland's. and so obviously being paired with john cassavetes in this i the whole time i was like i never realized that angie dickinson is if you blended jenna Rollins and ellen barkin like it didn't it didn't occur to me before, but then I saw <laughs> it and it's all I saw. And I was like, how, this is very funny to me that he's with such a, a Jenna type. And I mean, she's obviously Angie's star in her own might, but like, it was a very funny um, confluence because of course Cassavetes by this point, by 64, had been like, he'd been acting plenty, but also he had begun directing. I think Faces was before this. That was a funny side nod to me, especially when he got her Jenna Rollins
2: hair. I wanted to ask Samantha a question if I could, because uh, I know she, as a, uh, you know, fan of of the earlier film, I don't, I haven't seen it for, I think I saw it about a year ago, but remind me what the heist is in this in the first film
1: well kristen said she just saw it. it's been a minute since i've seen it i remember liking it more this is horrible i keep getting it confused with crisscross
2: <laughs> well and but there's a reason for that because because right. that's, that's the they they basically used to some degree used the crisscross uh the crisscross heist for you know, to, in, in this movie, there's also a there's also a movie starring Mickey Rooney called Drive a Crooked Road, mm-hmm. which uh, it, as Richard Quine directed it, Blake Edwards wrote it. And it it's very similar. He's he's a you know, he's a race car driver. He has to it, it's it's very, very similar to to the heist in, in the 64 killers.
0: So, so yeah, the, the heist in the 46 version, which, by the way, when I saw this movie. I was getting this confused with Brute Force, which is the other Burt Lancaster movie with (laughs) Yvonne DiCarlo. So again, these movies just all start to blend into one big noir ball. But the heist, as far as I remember it, they are doing like a payroll robbery in New Jersey. It's masterminded by this guy named Colfax. It's very similar to the, the heist in this film. It's just not as cool with the um, extended like ra- driving sequence it's pretty cut and dry to like the pretending that they're they're cops and kind of taking taking the the money from there but it doesn't have the planning element or the yeah the extended you know aerial shot of the drive that, that is in this movie. I think this movie is easier to also understand the heist and the double cross than in the 46 version which becomes very convoluted and at the end actually has to have Edmund O'Brien and Sam Levine explain to each other what has happened. So I think this, the 64 version streamlines things a lot easier.
3: It's because you get that amazing sketch that Ronald Reagan holds up that has like two roads on it. And then it's the (laughs) best. It's the like, I think a third grader made it. It's my favorite thing. If I ever do a heist, it will be off a sketch like that.
2: So it's, it's like you're expecting, you're expecting Michelangelo and then it's stick figures.
3: Truly. <laughs> Truly. And the best is because he's like, let's go over this again. And literally the whole so thing go is over like it three more times. Yeah, let's go over this <laughs> rudimentary map. And each one of us, you're like, oh, you have to be here. Then you're here. Then. And you're here then. You guys, let's go over it again. It's
2: amazing. I loved that moment. <laughs> you know, I, I want to disagree with you on one tiny thing, Dre. Uh, I do think that there is one character in, in the movie that is above sea level, and that is the Claude Akins character, his friend. Absolutely. Do you, see, do you see anything homosexual going on there? He really seems to love Johnny North. He even says, I yeah, love you. Yeah,
3: I think there could be a queer reading of that. I love Claude Akins, and I like seeing him as this role. And you're right, he is the one thing that you encounter that that he is guilt-free in every way. Like, he's just tried to be a good... And there is also an interest... It, it um adds some believability to the the possible queer reading of it, too, of his heavy response to Johnny and this woman and, and and, like him wanting or him, to stay away and then how he eventually like talks him out of being with her like when he's damaged and he just wants to build a home with him and like it's okay that you can't drive anymore we can just build cars and be together forever and yes that but you also you know right away that he's a good guy and that he's a good guy is proven in the flashback and then you have it cemented because he's literally just weeping he is just drunk and weeping you're so right he is a nice ray of it counters all of the nihilism and the fact that how do so many so socio or psychopaths all get in one story, yes, having him in there to sort of balance the scale and be like, no, this isn't a world without good people. Like, even the blind person, you know, like, you have this tall, gangly blind man who's the one that discovers the beat-up secretary. Like, there's also, you know, like, there's outsiders that are giving you a sense this world has decency in it. There's just not decency in our main characters. Can I just
0: say add- I love that it was Max who brought up the homoeroticism because it's usually me that That brings up. (laughs) Loves
1: it, yes. I picked up on that. Yeah, it's it's funny because that character dynamic is so code, but we have it here in a basically post code film. And I will say, his character gave me major Phil Harris vibes. I can also see that with. it made me think of like the jungle book and blue and yeah that got a little weird for a second
2: (laughs) i have to admit that i you know when i i look a lot of these movies now and i do see them through through somewhat different eyes that things that went, went over my my head and it and it's hard for me sometimes i'm i was asking actually kind of honestly there to see if anybody else had that reaction because Sometimes, sometimes a dancing hot dog is just a dancing hot dog, okay? And there were, you know, fr- you know friend relationships in these movies. Who knows? Maybe all the barry boys were straight. I doubt it.
3: <laughs> I didn't read it as a queer relationship, e- even one-sided, because I appreciated the idea, like I said, of having him as a balance but also I love any time that there is a male character uh, that's connected with his emotions and emotionally intellectual in a certain way and so having Claude be like um weeping or feeling the loss or bereavement rather than like oh I'd rather see that than a million like tough guy Lee Marvin's like grr, 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 like so for me I that complexity of it stood out more than any kind of gay reading but I'm also always open to it and I hope he found love with whomever he wanted.
2: Well, I always think about Mike the, the Mike Hammer of Kiss Me Deadly as an interesting character who everybody in the movie pretty much loves him and there's no reason for them to love him. I mean, he's got their their people are attracted to him. Why are they so attracted to this guy? who obviously barely knows they're alive every woman he's with in, in the movie you know wants to kiss him you know and he's just like yeah whatever and he does it and which is very different from the Mike Hammer of the books who was very a very much a sensualist but, but he there, there's a moment uh, in, in Kiss Me Deadly where the, the girl whose name is Friday just sees him pull up in his car and just just wants to kiss him and he's like yeah oh, sure you want another here's another I mean you can read that as this some sexist thing going on with with the male hero but knowing the writer and the director of that movie, they knew what they were doing. And the idea that this awful man is being, you know, that we're attracted to him. And he, they may have been saying on some level to all, all the readers who love my camera, why are you attracted to this man? Don't you see? There's no reason to. But, but again, it, that, that was a somewhat unfair uh, version of my camera. As much as I love that movie, <laughs> it's a bit unfair.
1: And again, that was so code too. I mean, it makes me think of like all of the Walter Brennan characters in the Westerns in the 40s that had that exact same like mindset as the friend in this it's again i'm surprised that they even had a character like that this late in the game in hollywood but i think it's so cool and i'm the kind of person i never realized until now we're sitting here talking about it i just have that lightning bolt moment of oh yeah that was super
3: <laughs> but exactly. well, I love you. on but me. I have that, <laughs> men are allowed to love their friends. Tell your friends you love them. Men, do it.
0: Your uh, life will be richer. It's a risk, in, in that though. <laughs> uh, well, I want to. I want to start winding us down. I, I'm sure we could go on for way too long about all of this, but I want to. I so. for me, I I definitely prefer the 64 version. I'm glad I saw both, but I prefer the the 64. I think there's coolness, and I know Max used the term sophistication for point blank, which I taped after watching this. Thankfully, TCM was showing it, so I'm going to watch that now. I think there's just such a fun and fast-paced and exciting element to this. that The 46 version's good, but it is very much Noir 101, even though you do get Ava Gardner in, you know, a jaw-dropping great outfit. I did prefer the 64 version. Drea, final final thoughts
3: on the killers? Once I realized that everyone making it was understanding the ridiculousness of the machismo and that it was not to be admired, but just setting the world of like, ugh, there's just this ugly... that the masculinity wasn't being upheld. It was, oh no, this is more about just bad people. I was all into this. I found it stylistic in ways that surprised me. The story surprised me. I mean, I knew what was coming, but I liked it. It had some a really nice non-linear layout, so I thought that was effective. And you guys obviously have already said it's setting the template of how I'll run my own future heists. So I'm gonna be indebted to forever but yeah no i definitely (laughs) enjoyed this
1: Samantha what about you? Uh, Well as I mentioned before I would say I still prefer the 46 version but that's more of a personal preference I think. I think I just really love Ava Gardner and Burt Lancaster and even Edmund O'Brien. I like him a lot too and just the the noir lighting and class and the costumes and everything I just love but I will say that the 64 version it's not something that I normally would have sought out but I'm really glad that I saw it. Again I just I don't love Lee Marvin as much. I think as Drea was saying he sort of has that like very Basic me, man, me shoot gun kind of thing. That's never really appealed to me. But I love, love a lot of the story elements of this. I think if the forty six version had, I guess it's kind of weird to say if the forty six version had borrowed those, it, I would have liked it even more. But, but I definitely prefer a lot of the the key points in this slot wise. But I'm definitely glad that I saw it out, or saw it out. I would, I would definitely see it again, and I would be inspired to check out more Ronald Reagan villain. Roles, but there aren't any, so I'm just stuck with this. <laughs> you can you can Again, just look
0: up historically.
3: Yeah, I would <laughs> go. I'm card. gonna
1: have to look it
3: up plenty of news coverage can can <laughs> do that for you. And, and I, I to ask, how many of you have seen Point Blank? I've seen some of it. I saw Point Blank, but. In a theater, so a long time ago when we had theaters, yeah.
2: Because it's it's, it's really a key film. And in terms of seeing the killers, you know, Angie Dickinson is also, she's like his sort of love interest in, in Point Blank. And it's a very, very stylish Uh, there's there's a wonderful moment where he he's been betrayed by her and he goes back to the this apartment where they lived and he shoots the bed which is you know (laughs) okay i mean he just shoots the bed it's a very important crime film and of its time particularly because it spoke to a time when talk about morality i think we're really we're talking about right as the Vietnam War is starting to be in every young person's the middle of their their, their their brain and their their being. I like both of the movies, but I particularly like this movie because I like Don Siegel as a director in general. I mean he, he did he, he was an incredible action director. And I look at this, this movie didn't have to be good. This could have been a paycheck for everybody. And Cassavetti's one would think, since he is this budding, very naturalistic, crazily naturalistic uh, director, writer, improv guy, that he took it seriously. He he could have looked at that script and said, this is bullshit. He's absolutely giving it 100%. He does not stint. He's not fooling around. None of these people are are doing any. They're none of them are just taking their little lunchbox to work. They're all delivering. And Siegel does things with the direction. He's constantly taking characters and framing them within a shot so that they're separated. So that when Angie Dickinson, for example, leans over the bed, the chain contains her face. So so even they're they're apart. And there's constantly times where he uses the, just the geography and the, the mechanics of whatever's around to separate the people within the shot. He didn't have to do that. He, he, he got his paycheck, you know, he's, he's making a TV movie, but they cared even if it was just for the sake of their own dignity, which is something none of the characters gave, gave a damn about.
0: <laughs> well, Max, we thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us for me this is like the best moment of my month, uh, probably my year. I don't know.
2: <laughs> you gotta try harder. You gotta try harder. <laughs>
0: well, you know, things are getting back to normal, so you know, give it, give it some time. But where can fans find and get in touch with you? What, what's new coming from the the mind of Max Allen Collins? Anything you want to share? Feel sure. free.
2: Sure, uh, I ha- I do have uh, I obnoxiously a website called maxallencollins.com. The Allen is A L L A N, like Edgar Allan Poe, who also gets it misspelled constantly. And if they're not going to get him right, they're certainly not going to get me right. You know, there's, there there's a lot going out. There's a Quarry book out right now called Killing Quarry, and then I have one coming up called Quarry's Blood. If you've never read a Quarry, I uh, Killing Quarry is a fun one to try. And I'm going to be doing more more Nate Heller. My wife and I do a cozy series. And I know that may seem strange that I'm involved in a cozy mystery series, but it's about antiquing, but it's very funny. And uh, we write that together. And she's, ext- you know, she'd have to have a good sense of humor, wouldn't she, to, to, to live with me. But the, the first book to give you an idea of what the, the tone is like, the first book is called Antiques Roadkill. So they're fun books. They're, they're really, really good light reads, but they're they're, they're crazy fun. And then uh, I've just started a series with a friend of mine about a character called John Sand. And John Sand is the in the context of the story is is the man uh, that John, James Bond was based on and and who, whose friend in whose friend who's apparently in Fleming, I never used his name, you know, took all of his experiences and, and turned and made all this money off it. And the basic the core pre- premise is that the end of not to do a spoiler the end of Honor Majesty Secret Service when the wonderful his wonderful wife is killed in, in my world she didn't die and uh, so the and so this is so it's a kind of like if the Thin Man meets Ian Fleming basically and so we've done I just delivered the third of those and they're now the first one is called Come Spy with Me and then there's Live and Let Spy so they're but they're not they're not spoofy they're they're more like they're they're Connery not more. okay.
0: You're just giving me more things to spend my paycheck on, Max. Damn you. (laughs) That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, you can find Ticklish Business wherever you get your podcasts. Spotify, Audible, all of the places. Apple Podcasts. If you are on Apple Podcasts, help us out reviews matter so leave us one you can always find me on twitter at journeys underscore film Drea Clark where are you on the internet I'm on twitter at the Drea
3: Clark and as ever I also co-host a contemporary podcast currently called the untitled iffy Drea and Alonzo project as we are changing our name
1: <laughs> and Samantha Ellis well I am most active on twitter at classic film geek you can also find my blog at musings of a classic film and my Cooking with the Stars posts are still at ClassicMovieHub.com
0: and don't forget we are on Twitter at Ticklish underscore Biz and we have our official website at JourneysInClassicFilm.com where Kimberly Pierce does reviews and videos and all sorts of fun stuff you can head over there and if you want to support us with your money female creatives have a more uphill battle than male creatives when it comes to podcasts. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We give away movies on DVD in blue, all sorts of pins. Uh, and we have two bonus shows which yes because you need more of our discussion of film we do based on a true podcast and doubled features so that's all at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz we will be back next time help us get to a thousand followers so we can give away that big prize pack we are getting closer on twitter but we are not there yet but we will be back with a new episode next time till then